Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. As usual, really excited for today's guest. I had a chance to work with her and watch her career, so I'm excited to learn some more and see what she's up to now. So today's guest grew up in Saskatchewan. She played in the CCAA for Medicine Hat, where she was actually named the CCAA Player of the Year. She went on to play professional indoor in France before starting her beach career, where she's represented Canada over 30 times and has a podium result at a Norseka. She represented Canada in a four-on-four tournament in Doha, where I'm sure we'll hear about her Olympic athlete treatment at that event. And she's recently started a project with friend of the show, Kristen Monks, called Evolve Volley, and we'll hear all about that. So please welcome to the show, Megan Naj. Megan, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. I'm excited. Before we get into this, though, I got to thank you for recording. I believe it's either today or definitely this week is your wedding anniversary, right? Yes, it's today. <laughs> hey, so thanks for making time. I mean, Tom, Tom's a good guy. So for him to you know spare you for an interview, I think that's great stuff. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It's um, an unusual anniversary, I suppose, just because we were trying to find a patio to go sit on this afternoon, but we found one. So it's going to be good. <laughs> nice. Nice. So let us in on it because Saskatchewan, they do have some top athletes and we've had like Derek up on the show and, and Sask is obviously producing high level volleyball players, but it's still not like a hub, especially for beach players. Right. So when you were growing up, what other sports did you play and how did you finally land on volleyball to be the one that you were going to invest all your time into? Um, yeah, Saskatchewan beach volleyball, especially is not a thing or wasn't, wasn't a thing at all when I was growing up. And so, um, I played baseball from a very young age because both my parents played. I feel like that's kind of, you know, you play what your parents play. So I started playing baseball when I was like three or four, like super young played while well, I was figure skating for a while. I was on the track team, um, got, got pretty into track for a little while and then started playing volleyball in grade seven. Uh, just like in gym class. And then I credit my my principal at the time because I'm from rural Saskatchewan, like a very small town. And he encouraged me to go try out for the club program in Yorkton, which, you know, is a, um, a little bit of a drive. I was intimidated by the idea of a tryout and just meeting other people, but he pushed for that. Um, and that was kind of the start of getting into the club scene and, and really falling in love with volleyball at that time. But I played baseball right up until I had a decision to go to college and I was choosing between baseball and volleyball for colleges to go to was a track athlete until you know midway through high school kind of thing before I started focusing on on volleyball a little bit more as well so when you say a little bit of a drive like were you doing homework in the car like it was eating up that much (laughs) of your day like um well it's it's around like a 30 35 minute drive so it's not terrible but at that time, it was actually, it was funny. I remember because Brenbury used to have a school and it doesn't anymore, but um, our school shut down. And then I was the first one picked up on the bus and the last one dropped off after school. And I was actually on the local news because my bus ride was like an hour and a half. (laughs) (laughs) And it was funny. And they were like, kids shouldn't have an hour and a half bus ride. And I was like yawning on the news. It was was funny. So, I mean, it felt like a bigger deal than it it was because I know a half hour drive was is kind of peanuts but um I think it was more so the like meeting all the Yorkton girls and they had all been playing together at their schools and I was just kind of heading in there feeling like an outsider nice and what was the the club structure in Sask like how far would you have to travel for club tournament how many clubs were there because I feel like with you being in Toronto right now if you want to play club volleyball in Ontario I think most communities have a club like most people don't get turned away anymore right so for you making the sacrifice to travel and then what was your competition schedule like yeah, the Ontario club volleyball scene is very competitive. It seems like um, I know a few people that are coaching, and and the recruiting process is 
is, I mean, it seems very like professional-esque, whereas Saskatchewan, you just kind of, you know, show up. Most kids are taken, I think. Like, I guess back then, crowds at tryouts were a little bit bigger, but Yorkton had one club. And then I think like the bigger places like Regina and Saskatoon would have had two or three. Those were the main places that we would travel to for, for club tournaments would be Regina and Saskatchewan. The club season, you know, I don't think it was it was all that long, but I mean, I remember club tournaments being like the best time ever where you just, you got to hang out with all your friends and play four or five matches a day. Like I couldn't imagine playing four or five matches a day now, but back then it was just like the greatest time. And, and again, I just don't really remember it being as intense as provinces like Ontario where, where kids are like specializing and know that they are really wanting to do volleyball by the time they hit the club scene, it feels like. And you mentioned you were you were balancing a few other sports. So when it came time to choose where you're going to attend your post-secondary, what stood out with Medicine Hat for you and what stood out with you choosing volleyball over, say, baseball or your other sports? Medicine Hat, I would say, was the closest offer I got. And that was comforting to myself and my parents. Again, I guess just being from a small town and, and Medicine Hat felt enormous at the time, even though going back now, it feels very small. And especially after living in Toronto, but that was that was probably the main driving factor. I had gone to camps there since I was in grade ten. Was familiar with the coaching staff. Um, a few, two other girls from my high school had gone through Medicine Hat um, that were a couple of years older than me and said that they really liked it. So it was just the most familiar feeling. And as far as baseball versus volleyball, that was a big decision making factor too. Because for baseball, I would have had to go to the states. And so it was, it was basically just like, this one is, is closest to home, uh, the shortest drive. I like the coaches. I had a couple other offers within, um, the ACAC and then like one or two in the States for like lower level divisions and took the one that, that felt most comfortable. And was college a bit of a jump for you from club or because you're playing club and it's obviously pretty competitive, like was your first year shocking to see the next level or did you kind of get comfortable right away? Yes. My first year was very shocking. Uh, it took me a couple of years actually to kind of get into the stride. Uh, I almost actually got cut in my second year. Like my first year, couple of years there, I did not excel. And I think that was in part because within the club scene, I had kind of, you know, you're from a town of no people. You, you quickly kind of become the best if you have a certain level of skill. And so in this small town of no one, I was pretty good. So then I got to college and like was expecting to also be looked at that way or like treated that way or expect to just be as good as everyone else right away. And that wasn't the case. And so it took a couple of years to catch up, kind of get out of my own way, ego wise. Um, had a couple like really tough conversations with with my coach at the time and then started to turn my attitude around, which completely turned my game around as well and my work ethic and everything else. But it was a very tough transition for me, for sure. I can't picture you having an attitude problem. So what was, <laughs> what was the source there? Like you just didn't have a growth mindset. Like you didn't want the feedback. You thought you were good. Like what was the cause of this first ever Megan has an attitude situation? <laughs> exactly. That was exactly it. Like I needed to be told the differences between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And I think, I was kind of closed minded before and then had to really be told like, this is what makes a great athlete. Like you need to, you need to like failure. You need to enjoy 
the growing pains of all of this, which I didn't, you know, I really liked, like I said, like my, my decision to go to Medicine Hat was comfort based and I wanted everything to be comfortable and it wasn't. And that was really uh, jarring for me. And so I needed to take on an entirely different like persona and mindset to, to switch that around. And I think that that was one of the most helpful conversations I've ever had with, with my coach at that time and has completely changed my life. Yeah. And just to follow your career path, like when you were named CCAA player of the year, was that something you had thought about and that was going to be your goal? Like, are you somebody who thinks that team goals and individual goals need to be exclusive? Or were you thinking, I'm going to score points for my team. I'm going to battle. I'm going to work hard. And if I get rewarded with that, that's cool. But the the team's going to perform well because I'm performing well. Um, We had a really close knit team for my third, fourth and fifth years. And I think we just kept growing together as a squad and it was, it was pretty incredible the way that we supported each other. And I don't think I had thought about personal accolades really. Like I was even really surprised when I got that, that award sitting at that banquet because that was our first time in the, in medicine hats history that we had made it to nationals. So we were celebrating already as a team and being like, you know, we did it. We got here, (laughs) look at us go, like, let's have the best time. And then I got that award and really wasn't mentally prepared for that either. I don't think like I went from having a great time with my friends and like feeling really loose about the tournament to getting this award and then being like, holy shit, I need to now be the player of the year. Like, how am I supposed to do that? So then I went into this tournament. I had nationals was the worst tournament I I have ever played. And it was because I had put all this additional pressure on myself to be this great, like larger than life player. And it really, I wasn't, I wasn't in the right headspace um, to take that on or, or it hadn't done the, like the proper prep for that because we were just so in the headspace of like celebrating because we had made it to nationals, which I guess, I mean, when I've heard you ask the question of, um, I think it was to Josh of his first Olympics versus his second about like being happy to be there versus going in with a purpose. I think that that first, that first nationals, we were just like really happy to be there. And then when I got that award, I was a little bit shocked. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I've never really thought of it from that standpoint, but winning a major award like that, like it, it influenced your perception of yourself and your own game, right? Mm-hmm, completely. It was, it was pretty wild. And Jamie Broder, I remember talking about uh, about this with her afterwards because she was commentating that tournament and like a couple years later after I had come to Toronto and I was chatting with her I was just like we were breaking down the tournament and how you know she was saying how okay here's Megan and and her team and she's the player of the year and whatever I was every time someone would say something like that over over the the speakers I was just like oh god okay (laughs) here we go Megan you're gonna be the player of the year Uh, it was a lot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So winning that award and obviously getting your team to nationals, were those things that you used for confirmation to look to being a professional athlete, like when you turned pro or what were the conversations or the actions that led to you finding an agent and then comparing offers and eventually going overseas to France? Um, that was also in large part because of the coaching staff that I had in medicine hat, like bench Heinrichs was my coach there and he set me up with his agent when he was playing professionally. So that was a big help because I had no idea how that system even worked. Like that professional level is not something that was talked about at the college level. Uh, like there's no one really talks about like how the recruiting process works, how getting an agent works. So I had to kind of seek that out 
and make a video and like sort out how how that whole process went but it was mainly driven from the fact that like I really loved the game and I did not want to stop playing I had no direction basically like in college or afterwards my entire purpose of going to college was to play volleyball I felt like and after after that like I took business in school because I met with an academic advisor and she was like take business you'll have options I was like okay great options are nice (laughs) So I was at school to play volleyball. And after that was over, I needed to keep playing. Like it just, it wasn't an option for me. And I, w- I went through kind of like a spiral with that. Cause I'm like, Oh my God, like, is this really the end? So yeah, I went out, got an agent and, and got, um, I'm not sure if this is the way that like, if other people that have played professionally have similar stories to this, but my contract came. And I had to be in France six days later. And so it was just, that was also like a very jarring transition because I had to like pack up my whole life and get on a plane. I hardly told anyone about it because I didn't feel like it was real. Like until I got there and someone picked me up at the airport, then I finally like posted on my social media, like, Hey, I got a contract and it's actually <laughs> a real thing. Like I'm not being punked. And it was, um, it was amazing. It was a really incredible year just to, to live that lifestyle, to, to work as hard as those players work. Like it was, it was a really beneficial year for me and also helped me to solidify that I really loved beach in a weird way because I had started playing beach midway in my fourth year, my fourth summer leading into my fifth year of college, I stayed and didn't go back home. And we had a pretty good group of people that stayed throughout the summer and we played beach every single day. And I had never played beach before. It was like the most foreign concept of trying to jump in the sand. I felt so unathletic and terrible. (laughs) But I started to love it so much that by the time I got to France, I knew that I wanted to play beach longer term. And I think that it suited my, you know, my skill set and my body as well. Like I, after being in France or midway through my season, playing professionally and I was a left side you basically just have to like hammer every ball as hard as you can (laughs) I was like okay I'm not sure how much longer my shoulder can last out here um, or my body in general I guess and a lot of people playing professionally don't have as long of careers as as beach players for that very reason like obviously the sand easier on your joints and your body and and I wanted longevity Uh, so I, I transitioned over to the beach when I got back from that year in France yeah, before we jump into your beach career, looking at your indoor career, going through what you did at nationals and winning player of the year and stuff like that, did that help you deal with like your your perception and image of going and playing pro in France? Or did you feel pressure that, you know, they paid for this foreigner to come in and now you're going to be responsible to really perform and be on every game? Like, was there anything going on or were you just soaking it in? It was your first exposure to professional volleyball and you were just going to take everything as a lesson? Yeah, I think I was more in that headspace. I had, there was a little bit of pressure at first because I knew that the team I went to could only like bring on one professional player. And so I was that person. So I knew that I was playing a big role, but it it felt very different. I think because after nationals, that was a big wake up call for me that I needed to do more mental work, more mental training. So I started to do that the summer before heading over to France. And it was still a big dip because I was the only native English speaker there and didn't know any French before going over. I, I bought like Rosetta Stone CDs to try and learn <laughs> the language on the way there. <laughs> so I had more of a, a growth mindset with that experience for sure. Took basically every practice as a lesson and it was a different, 
um, the different mentality about it as well. Like this is your job. So you wake up and you treat your body the way it needs to be treated to, to go to work that day. You know, like practices were three hours followed by a two hour lift. Like it was harder than I've ever worked before. And that was a big, you know, mentality shift because in college you're a student athlete and the student part comes first. And as a professional athlete, like all of your focus goes into that. And I spent a lot of time throughout that, that entire year there focusing on what I could do mentally to, to be better. Nice. Nice. And because you had one eye on the beach the whole time, were you able to play beach when you were over in France or you just decided when you got home, you were going to figure out a way to get a partner and play internationally? Like what was your thought process to changing into the beach game? I wasn't able to play over there, which was a little bit sad. My, a couple of my friends and Tom came over after my contract was over and we, uh, we backpacked for a few months. And so whenever we found a beach court, we would, we would play. But while I was over there, I just knew that, uh, that this is what I wanted to do. So that was kind of like the research phase of everything, like understanding how everything worked in Toronto, how, you know, how getting a partner worked, how travel worked, where the tour stops were, like that was kind of what I was looking into while I was over there. And I think that's maybe why I felt the way I did throughout France as well, that like I was taking everything as a lesson because I knew that that it wasn't maybe like my end all be all or that it was like a stepping stone. Um, so I really was in kind of a gentler headspace during that time. But yeah, when I came back, I moved to Edmonton and lived like three steps from the beach volleyball courts, the tennis, um, they're, they're called the Garneau tennis and beach volleyball courts. And I lived super, super close. We, I played every day, was also working uh, full time to try and save up to make this move out here. And I think that was a big part of my growth too, because there was just such a great crew that was out there that was willing to play every day and <laughs> like rain or shine, we were out there and stayed there for, I think like eight or nine months before making the move out to Toronto or before coming out for nationals. That's how it went. Um, I, I basically like begged one of the girls out there to come play at nationals just so I could find um, Steve and Ed and try to start some of these conversations and see if I had a chance in moving out here. So that was the direction. Yeah. Like for me being in it and growing up in Ontario, like I understand the pathway, but also on the other side, trying to recruit athletes out of province to come to national team tryouts, it can be challenging because it's not that clear to people. Right. So for you, nationals was going to be your big entry. Is that what you felt you had to do? Or did you contact Steve or, or Ed and figure out what you needed to do? Like how did somebody from out West basically find the beach national team? Yeah, I felt like nationals was my way in. Like I knew that the coaches would be at nationals. And so we got to nationals with basically like the purpose of like, yes, we wanted to win games, but both of us, because my my partner at the time was like really supportive of me. And we were just scouting out that whole tournament of like, where was Steve? Where was Ed? How can I start these conversations with them? <laughs> it's kind of funny, like thinking about now, but um, I remember them watching watching a game on center court and they were sitting together and I was like, Oh my God, like this is my time. <laughs> so I was shaking <laughs> and went up and, and started talking to the two of them. And they kind of explained how things worked, said that I could come out for kind of like a, a mini tryout by myself just so they could like assess my skill or my potential or what have you. And so flew back after nationals, uh, came back out a month later and had like a personal tryout with, with Steve. And then, I didn't, I hadn't told work anything. And I went back and basically like 
asked for a transfer to Toronto and moved a, a couple weeks after that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was pretty wild. Did you just understand that that's just part of coming with the job description that you were going to have to relocate to Toronto? Like, obviously, you had started your career. Like, was it just par for the course? You're kind of like, oh, I want to play beach. So therefore, I have to live in Toronto. I have to figure out my finances. I got to figure out training. Like, what went into this decision? Or you were just so excited to have the opportunity to play beach, you were going to do anything that they asked you to do? I did quite a bit of, of looking into it before. So I knew that you had to be in Toronto if you wanted to be on the national team. and that I wouldn't be able to work full-time once I got here. So in Edmonton, I worked full-time for that eight or nine months, like saved all the money that I possibly could, was living with a couple of friends and like paying pretty cheap rent. And so was able to save and came out here, transferred to, uh, I was working at CIBC's investment firm at the time. And so I transferred to the Wood Gundy that was right downtown and they agreed to let me work, you know, like five, I think it was like four or five hours a day. Um, which meant that I could go to training in the morning and head there for the afternoon. And, and my workday was done at like six or whatever. So it worked out really well. The only part that was kind of like a gap and everything was, was Tom. Cause we were obviously, we've been together for such a long time. And, and when I got the green light that I could come out, I was like, okay, I'm leaving and I'll, you're going to move too. It's going to be great. He's like, Oh God. Okay. Uh, and so he came out five months after I got here and, and everything was great, but that was the, I had to like find, um, an apartment and furniture and everything before I, before I moved in. And I moved at the beginning of November. Like I remember I moved on November 4th and I was at training the morning of the 5th, like woke up at 6am, got on the subway, <laughs> went up to Downsview. Like I was just so excited. <laughs> wow. Wow. And then again, just to shout out your, your plan there. So you mentioned you had arranged these hours at work. My understanding was they let you bank some hours as well, right? So if you're just like, ah, I'm going to go to China for three weeks and play in a bunch of events, and you would get permission basically to leave and then just bank those hours that you owed the company, right? Is that how that worked? Yes, exactly. They were really flexible with me. It was so much appreciated because I could, you know, if we knew that we were, like you said, heading to China for a month, I could be more flexible with uh, with training even sometimes too and work extra hours for the two weeks leading up so that it, everything worked out. And I just had to make sure that the team that I was working for was covered, you know, all of their admin and stuff like that. And it always, it always worked out. They were, they were super supportive. And I was in a very small branch at the time as well. And some of the, like the team that I was working for actually lucked out with this too, because I was working for two, two investment advisors that were also former athletes. And so they were, I think, really flexible because of that. <laughs> Now, obviously, we're a volleyball show, so our listeners probably aren't that surprised that beach volleyball players have to have jobs to support themselves. But for you managing that, did it ever become a distraction or it was kind of relieving that you were going to you were gonna move to a different city, you were going to find a way to train full time and still have a job? Like, Did that relieve stress because you had a financial backing and you could afford to kind of commit to this? Or did it become a distraction because the, the other side of that is you couldn't really be a full-time professional athlete because you had to work so many hours every day, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I always had the, the idea that like I was working towards carding and that was the goal. And I mean, it took a couple of years before I was carded, but during that time I was still viewing all of the work that I was doing as like my way to play volleyball. And I basically had, uh, for, for the first couple of years that I was out here, I was heading from training to work back home, like sleeping, eating, training, working. That was like, that was my day. So there was not really much else other than that, but I was fine with it. 
you know, like people talk all the time about, you have to make sacrifices to, to get to where you want to be. So I definitely didn't have any kind of a social life. (laughs) There was, you know, no partying, there was nothing like that. So it was fully focused on volleyball and then work. And when I got home, I would do my, you know, I actually, I was working out before practice, um, even the 8am practices sometimes with Thomas Lamb at Fitz a little bit. So that, that was helpful too, that I could like stack everything in one area uh, and then head down to training. And, and that made it easier because I was TTCing everywhere. And what were some of your first impressions? Cause just looking at your uh, BVB info page, you, you play an international event, you take a fourth at a Narsica, you're thinking, oh, this is easy. This is awesome. I'm in the semis at my first pro tournament. Like I've got this. Uh, yeah, I remember that tournament like it was yesterday because we there was no pressure on us, obviously, going into it. Um, that was both MC and I's first tournament and coming fourth. We were obviously disappointed that we didn't hit the podium, um, but felt really excited about our potential as a team because we were still like so early on and figuring things out. I was supposed to like, we weren't even partners really before that tournament. We got together two weeks before that tournament happened and, and then started rolling with it after that. So I think the fact that there was no pressure on us um, that we went in and just played really loose was a big factor in that for sure. Now let's, let's pull on that for our listeners who haven't had the joy of representing Canada. When you say figure things out, like what went into that? Was that, travel, food, negotiating what a Norsega schedule is going to look like because it might change by the time you go to bed and wake up again. Uh, obviously, technical, tactical. Like, What were some lessons that stood out to you pretty early on in your beach career that you know encouraged you to keep going but also gave you like a wow moment of what you were in for? Um, we had, I mean, I, I think like, well, MC and I played together for a couple of years and our first year was sorting out our systems, figuring out, you know, where each other likes our sets, like those types of of technical things. And then later on, I, w- I just listened to your episode with Marquise actually, and we worked with him a little bit, um, had a few sessions with him on the importance of proper recovery between teammates and, you know, like making good eye contact, making sure that, that you are emotionally recovering with your partner between points, especially during tough matches and, you know, times when you're really down in games. And that was our evolution during our, our second year of playing together. But our first year, was just such a big learning curve in terms of learning how to play beach volleyball and the strategies within it. And once we felt like we had a better grasp on that, then we kind of took deeper dives and tried to get uh, personal coaches and, and things of that nature. We never traveled with a personal coach, but every tournament there were such huge lessons from it. And so being able to debrief that with people when we got back home was really important and essential and hearing from players that had gone before because yeah, we had never been to, well, that first Norseca was in Florida. So it was a little bit different than, than Norsecas that we'd been to um, since then, because a lot of Norse or a lot of tournaments in general, I suppose they're like, things happen, things change. You don't really know what to pack if you're going to a country you've never been to before. So relying on other players that had been through the system uh, more than we had was essential for us as well. And then as you continued to, to climb the ladder, was there a jump going from Norseca to some FIVBs? Because again, I'm just looking, you, you've kind of done it all where you played in like a Long Beach Grand Slam, you've been to the Fort Lauderdale one, and then you've also gone to Asia and played in like one, twos and three stars, right? So when you are planning your schedule and looking at like the size of the event, 
is a is a five star pretty daunting compared to Dornsico? Like, what was your experience with the level and the competition? Yeah, you're right. I guess I kind of have been all over the place. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think in the first few years, we were really just focused on gaining experience. So if we could sneak our way into a five star, that was like an incredible thing, and we were we were just amped to again, just like really excited to be there fought tooth and nail in the qualifier and and that was kind of more the mentality of of like the four or five star system whereas you know one two even some three stars are more often in like asia or places like that not not in the european countries and so that's more so those types of tournaments were focused on okay like we, we want to get some points we're after this specific results uh we always you know you always do goals Uh, and goal setting before you head off to a tournament and so it felt like a bit of a difference in the way that we would set goals or like obviously you know at a two-star we would more so expect a podium finish than at a five-star and things like that but um, I'm such a big believer in in goals and in writing things down and and just like being clear on the direction that you want to go and I think that that um, is reflected quite often in in people's results too. And in the amount of belief that they have in themselves and the way that that shows up in their goal setting. So I think that like when you make a specific goal, I know, I know that there's like outside influences and you don't always just because you write down, I'm going to get on the podium that that, not saying that that happens, but you know, more nuanced things like making the national team in the first place. Like I had written that down when I was 22 this sounds made up but it it actually isn't I wrote down when I was 22 and in France like beach national team by 25 and when I was 25 that is when I made the team and that's like I'm such a big believer in like your subconscious mind just kind of takes over when you make these big goals and directs you to where you're supposed to go because it's these like these small micro decisions that you're not even aware of that that just take you there and so I think that goal setting before tournaments was, you know, a big thing that we did, uh, but differed a little bit depending on the star. Yeah. I was just curious about that. Like, would your goal always be like the results driven or what were some other things that you, you would discuss with your, your partner and your team about what you wanted out of that event? Not always results driven. It would be, sometimes it would be, you know, the way that we wanted to feel during specific games or, you know, we want to run, like if we were working on new plays or new sets or something like that, there would be like small goals within a certain set of like, okay, I want to try and run this, you know, a certain amount of times, or like, I want my side out percentage to be this, I want my passing percentage to be this. And we'd zone in on, or like focus in on one thing more so than others. Um, So those always help me as well. Like being a little bit more focused on like, okay, I have a serving goal for this game. So that's, that helps me to not get overwhelmed with like <laughs> the entirety of, of what's happening. If you have smaller goals like that. So that's, um, I mean, I'm doing a bit of coaching now and that's kind of what I've been trying to, to tell my athletes too. And I feel like it helps. And how, because you're so aware of how you were doing goal setting and how you want to feel, how did you deal with the challenge of beach volleyball of being in the qualifier, right? Like you're, you're the difference of getting off a plane and knowing you're in the tournament versus in the qualifier, I think is something that every player experiences, right? So how did you kind of navigate those situations of knowing that you're flying to Australia and you have to be in the qualifier? Like that can be, that can be pretty intimidating to some players, right? Like you've spent all that money and you're technically not in the tournament yet. Oh yeah. There's nothing like the qualifier. <laughs> it is, I think 
for me in the beginning, um, I still wasn't thinking very much about qualifier versus not because I hadn't been to any of these countries yet. And I was still like in a period of just complete gratefulness that I got to, you know, travel the world and see all these places while representing Canada and like playing the sport I love. So I, I was, it was kind of an overarching, like if we, if we lost in the qualifier, well, let's make the best of it and go see, you know, this, that, or the other thing in, in whatever town or country that we're in. And so at first it, it that's kind of the mentality that I think a lot of players have, but the tour stops are, are often in the same places year over year. And so that kind of fades quickly when you're going to the same stop three years in a row and still in the qualifier or something like that, or like, you know, you're not as, not as excited to be in this country because it's no longer new. Like you've been here before. Now it's, now it's a little bit more pressure. Like now it's game time. Now it's time to see where your competitiveness kicks in or like where your win at all costs comes in for you or, you know, which players crumble and which players don't things like that, that, that each player has to kind of like think about and work on for themselves. And yeah, that's that's what I noticed the most throughout my journey is that like I wasn't thinking too much about the qualifier at first, um, but then a few years in, <laughs> the qualifiers are definitely more nerve-wracking than heading straight into a main draw. But then there's also like almost no better feeling than making it out of the qualifier either. Like the times when we did that are so memorable. So <laughs> kind of goes both ways, I guess. Yeah, and just to to make things clear, like obviously you mentioned you would tour around and do some other things, but for our listeners, you definitely weren't just a tourist because I remember when I was working with uh, Hernan and, and Christian and Felipe, we qualified for Long Beach. And I remember you and MC weren't lucky enough, like you didn't qualify, but you stuck around and you trained afterwards. And I think that's another uncomfortable feeling that comes with our sport is most people, when they get eliminated, they're trying to find a way home or get out of there where it, it takes a lot of toughness, I think, to show up to the venue when you're not in the tournament and find a court and train and find other teams. So what made you want to do that, first of all? Because like I said, I've seen people bail as, as, as soon as possible, where you guys, even if you were eliminated, you were going to find a time to train when you were already at the event, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we always did that. Um, that was something that came from John May, actually, I, th- I believe, because we worked with him a little bit too. And he, he, I think, was the one that was telling us like, just book your ticket. Like a lot of people wait to, to book their return ticket based on, you know, when they're out of the tournament, then they book their ticket to come home. But we would always just book our ticket as if we were, you know, in, in like the final couple of rounds and we would train because there's always going to be a few other teams that stick around and do the same thing that, that we were doing. So we would get, you know, great international training with, with a whole bunch of teams that, you know, you're not exposed to because you're no longer in the tournament, but like you'd see them at the next tournament or whatever. So it was, it was really beneficial to stick around and and continue training with people afterwards. Um, especially because like beach volleyball in Toronto, you're playing the same, you're practicing against the same teams over and over and over again. And you kind of get used to playing against them a certain way, or, you know, like they know your tendencies for how you swing on this side. And so it's like when you're playing against new people, you get to, to see what works and to see, what doesn't in your game in like a really pure way. So I, I enjoyed that about staying in training afterwards as well. And then watching the players that were in the finals, you know, like you learn a lot from, from watching and from seeing the tendencies of players that are at the top. And so I think that, you know, there's, you can't really, I, I felt like I couldn't really miss out on that either. So I think that that both of those things were extremely beneficial for us. 
and and not to sugarcoat it, what were some things that you could anchor to as you're progressing in your career? Like what were some goals you set out? Because uh, again, not to sugarcoat it, the results weren't always coming. Like there were times where you would lose in the qualifier, like two events are in a row, or I'm just looking at your BV info again here. So what helped you stay connected and work hard versus you see it in our sport all the time. People reach a point and they, and they just think it's not for them because the results aren't coming, but you have to put in so many seasons. I think they start getting results and that positive outcome. So how did you find a way to stick to it and, and, and earn some results later on when, like I said, I've seen people play one season, they go to three events and they're just like, no, nah, that's good for me. I gave it a shot. I'm, I'm out. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a difference of like nature versus nurture a little bit in, in the fact that when I was in college, my coaching staff had a really big part in developing this belief in me that, that I could work hard and accomplish like basically anything. And I, that's really stuck with me. And I think that, you know, I'd be discouraged after, like you said, two qualifiers in a row that we didn't get through, but there's always this underlying belief that I could learn from it. I could put in the work. Like if you still just continue to take everything as a lesson and learn that failure is, is your friend in those situations, like you hear all of the like all of the top athletes talking about how many times they failed before they get to success. And I just, you know, you have to remind yourself of that. You have to have that underlying belief that, that you'll know that you put the work in when you get back home and, and continue to show up, which I mean, I talk a lot in my, in my work and in my coaching now about um, this concept of self-efficacy, which is the belief that you'll continue to show up for yourself. And the more you show up, the more you prove to yourself that you can accomplish a certain task. And I think that's all it was for me, like spaced repetition over time of getting back home, watching my video, seeing what I can improve on. And you just follow that rhythm and follow that circle. And like, yeah, it really sucks to, to not get through the qualifier a couple times in a row. But I think that underlying belief is something that can be cultivated. Uh, it just takes some practice and some work. Yeah. I'm wondering You've had so many great experiences. I'm wondering if you can give us some examples that you would pass on to some younger athletes listening or some coaches listening, because you mentioned like your college coaches and then what Marquise and John May may have given you and then what you've been through. But as the stats and video guy, to me, when we're watching video, that's very evaluation friendly, where I'm always shocked that there's just that certain type of athlete that can lie to themselves and they can say, oh, that was this, that was that. Like they they start telling a story of why something didn't happen a certain way. So when you're evaluating this and kind of getting back up on the horse after getting knocked in the mouth and stuff like that. Like, how are you honest with yourself? Cause in the beach game, people blame their partner. They blame, Oh, I didn't get sleep or the shuttle was this or that. Like they, they have trouble getting down to like the real root of the issue. Right. And it sounds like you, you were pretty grounded and honest. Right. So how did you get it to that point where hopefully somebody listening can skip ahead and not have to go through the grind that you did? Uh, well, I think the, the biggest part of my beach game is, is understanding that like anyone can beat anyone. And that's, you know, should be a humbling thing for, for basically like every player. Like there's so many stories of qualifier teams getting through and beating like the first, first place team, you know, like first seeded team. That's, that's something that, that is not unusual to hear. So the fact that anyone can beat anyone is a big piece of that. But then I also think that my first few, few months in this sport I would say like six month period. I don't know if you remember this, but when I first got to the center, it was just Steve and I, and we were doing like drills on a court by ourselves, like 
without a volleyball, a lot of the time just doing footwork and like tossing tennis balls um, and doing like the really boring mundane stuff that no athlete wants to do. And I think you kind of like fall back on that and fall back on, you know, like there, I don't really, there's no like conceitedness or whatever within my game because I know that that's where I started and that anyone can start doing that. But I mean, sport is such a, a great teacher and a vehicle for self-discovery. So if you view it from that lens and like, what can this game tell me instead of falling back on, you know, like athletes at some level must know that if they're making excuses or like, okay, I just didn't get much sleep before that game. They must know that that's not the real reason or like, you know, there's countless. <laughs> you say examples. they must know, but there's coaches out there laughing right around. They're like, no, they have no idea. They have no <laughs> idea. <laughs> uh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's just like, um, some, some more mental training and like figuring out how to, to break into that space of awareness for different athletes, because yeah, I guess there have been athletes that I've, that I've worked with like that too. And it's just wording things in a certain way, or like I have, um, I was coaching team Alberta last year, they're, they're U16s and like figuring out through certain like wording questions, a certain way, how they can, like, if you absolutely had to pick something that, you know, didn't go well in this game, like for the athletes that really thought that they were all that, and like wording things in such a way that they can be like, okay, well, okay, I feel like I'm not being attacked. So now I can try to look at it from this point of view instead of, you know, instead of like coming at it from my ego or something like that. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's a tough one for sure. And I think just takes like a certain level of, of maturity and awareness and being willing to, to understand that like everyone's growing and evolving. Anyone can beat anyone, especially in beach volleyball. And that's just like the way that you learn is through through failures and through <laughs> through losses so um i think just like drilling that into athletes heads is <laughs> what i would recommend <laughs> <laughs> um another another cool layer to your journey seems to be what you're currently doing which is being an independent athlete so you're still representing canada but you're not technically affiliated with the national team right like you're not required to be a daily training and all that other stuff and you don't get the same I guess, services that a carded athlete would do. So when you went down that road, was that freeing for you knowing that, you know, you could train here and there's, there's a high level athletes here who you could train with and be independent. You could go out to Calgary and be a part of the MBBL and train there and make some contacts there. Like, did this help your career? Do you, I guess, do you wish you were still part of the national team? Like how has been an independent athlete helped you in the last, I guess, year, year and a half, maybe? I actually love the freedom that comes with being an independent athlete. Um, I know that I'm a self-motivated person. I don't need to be, you know, like forced into training or forced into workouts or anything like that. Like I know that I'll show up for myself in those areas. And so the fact that, especially with beach YYC, that new, there's a new indoor center in Calgary. That's really exciting because you know, the NBVL could run last winter and now it's another place in Canada that people can train year round. And actually exciting news that I haven't shared with, with many people yet um, is that Tom and I are moving out to, to Canmore. We're going to do a year in the mountains, uh, which Canmore is only, you know, 40 minutes from Calgary. So I'll be training more out there for this year, but just being able to have that freedom is really amazing and, and, you know, create your own training circle of the people that you want to be training with. And sometimes that is national team athletes. If, if I'm training more in Toronto during a different during a like a longer given period but it's been I mean being a part of the national team was amazing and I really loved it 
but I think that I was just at a point where I wanted some more freedom. I wanted the chance to be able to like spend a couple months in Calgary and bounce back and forth without there being any repercussions. So it's been, it's been a nice change. Um, and I'm excited to see kind of what this next winter is like, cause we're heading out to Canmore in about a month. <laughs> nice. I love breaking news on passing dimes. This is good. We're like a real media organization now with all these stories we're breaking. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So on just one more goal setting question, because to see how you go through your process and you really design your season, what were your expectations for you and Kimi to play in the Edmonton three-star last year? Because I'm wondering what your expectations were, how often you got to train together. Like, obviously it's special to play on home soil. And obviously with Kimi and her family being from Alberta, I'm sure it was special for her. What was it like for you and, and what went into those talks and your planning for that event? Oh, that event was so wild <laughs> in part because May 20th. So I think that event was July 17th. And on May 20th, I was training with Anna and Taylor and Sophie and I snapped my ankle, like oh, tore a I bunch of ligaments in it and couldn't do anything. Like wasn't in the sand at all for seven weeks. Like the two days before the tournament was my first time back in the sand. And I was coming straight from our wedding, like drove from Saskatchewan to Edmonton a couple days after the wedding. We trained together for those two days before. So for like many months before, before they, my ankle happened, we were, you know, starting to, to make our goals and to figure out when I would be in Calgary so we could train together. Um, and Don, her dad, coaches us and he's a fantastic coach. I really love working with him. So I was, you know, really looking forward to all of that and being able to to be on home soil, especially in Edmonton because of my experiences at Garneau and that whole um that whole crowd still being out there. And so to be able to to play was still really amazing. And we almost we almost won that match, which was like incredible because I was hardly doing anything like I was just hobbling around me <laughs> was doing everything like putting every ball over on two my ankle was taped so much it felt like I was wearing a cast <laughs> was, uh, yeah she was such a beast and we still almost won that game somehow but I think it was just you know really special for for her too to have her whole family there watching and I wish that <laughs> the ankle injury didn't happen but you know such is life and I'm sure we'll get another chance at that sometime in the future. Yeah. And, and to build on that, another special event you got to play in last year was that four on four event in Doha. So how did that team come together? Like, I understand there wasn't a qualification tournament. So basically you getting all the other best players to sign up, like you guys got to go. What was it like when you landed? Because like you guys, I think everybody had played FIVB. The U.S. team was very, very stacked as well. Like there were some good players at that event. So without anybody really experiencing that before, what was that event like for you? <laughs> it was it was pretty incredible. Um, that was thanks to the efforts of Tori Cowley. She found this event somehow and kind of gathered players that like some of them haven't, hadn't played for a long time. Like Rachel Cockrell and, and Carrie Schmidt had both not played for a couple of years. Um, same with Charlotte hadn't really been playing all that much either. And we hadn't practiced fully as a squad until we got there and like, didn't even really know the strategy or what we were supposed to be doing as a four on four team. And it was um, pretty mind blowing. We were treated so well, like it felt like we were going to a, a mini Olympics. Like we were outfitted in Hudson Bay gear. Like the COC members were congratulating us for, for being there. And, uh, well, and for meddling, um, but you know, we had like 
a security team with us. Like it was incredible. It was um, a much different experience than like just you and your partner traveling by yourself to FIVBs and Norsecas. It was like so, so different than that. Um, but a really great experience and so glad that we got to represent Canada in that because it was the first, the first of its kind, really. I think that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but like, I feel like around that time I was hearing talks of, of them wanting to try and get four on four, maybe into the Olympics at some point in time. Um, or at least that was kind of like the buzz that was happening there. Not sure how much, uh, merit there is to that, but anyway, we were excited because we meddled at this, you know, the first tournament of its kind and it was just this really bizarre super quickly put together thing that um that was like such an incredible unexpected time yeah because it's called like a knock or something right like it's a multi-sport games but it's all beach focused or summer focused right yeah all beach focused like sports i had never seen nor did i think were even possible like there was beach basketball somehow like different variations of beach soccer um like beach tennis there was like all sorts of things that i did not think would be possible in the sand and we tried to watch uh, a couple different sports but the venue was broken up into two separate areas and the area we were in was mainly beach volleyball all the time but we we got a a glimpse at some of the other sports and they were nuts (laughs) it was very cool (laughs) nice nice and you did mention earlier that you're already coaching some athletes but tell us about evolve volley and how you and kristen monks decided that you wanted to to start this project and really start working with i guess youth athletes and just doing different layers of of private training and coaching and all the other stuff you're up to yeah so kristen and i played together in medicine hat and i think she was also a big part of my growth too because she is such a great leader. Like she's a lead by example type of player, like always giving it her best and really pushed me while we were working there together. And, uh, we've remained such good friends. Like she's one of my best friends to this day. And we were in Calgary for three months together, I guess this past year and decided to put together a club because we felt like we could really, you know, go to these smaller towns that don't often get access to higher level coaches or, you know, it's, it's oftentimes just like someone's parent that played in high school or something like that. So we were traveling around to small town, Alberta. We wanted to start, you know, small town Saskatchewan as well so that some of these athletes, uh, you know, like younger me <laughs> that had no idea that, you know, playing professionally was an option or that beach volleyball is an option or things like this that we could kind of open their eyes to this world a little bit, even if it's just over the course of a weekend, I think that that could make a big impact in kids' decision-making, their development, you know, their work ethic, all these other things that, um, that we felt that, that we could help with. So yeah, we created Evolve Volley and it's been really fun. We, we got to do a few camps before COVID happened. Um, and now that restrictions are lifting a little bit in Alberta, we're hoping to, to get back on the train with that. Awesome. Awesome. And I think your website's pretty friendly, right? Like if people wanted to reach out, it's just evolvolley.com. Right. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. So all this yeah. exciting stuff on the go. It was great to learn about your career and hear how you got here. I definitely learned a lot, which is funny because I feel like I've known you for a few years now, but it was good <laughs> to, to catch up on all that stuff. Uh, I'm wondering if you could leave us with a, a funny story before we let you go. So you've had all this experience in volleyball, but I imagine something hilarious has happened along the way so i was wondering if you could tell us one more story before we let you go 
Yeah, so many, so many things come to mind. I feel like the the kind of like craziest one was MC and I were in we're in China uh, for an extended period. Like usually when we went to China, we would try to play you know, three tournaments over the course of a month kind of thing. So we were in China for a month and I didn't know that Flight Network even did this, but we booked our flights through Flight Network and the first leg of the trip was via bus. So we went to the airport and our flight was actually a bus that was across town. So we missed the bus and (laughs) the person behind the counter, like obviously we're having troubles communicating. We're like visibly upset because we're going to miss our next flight because we're not on this bus. Um, so the, someone behind the counter calls like a friend of theirs and he, his friend drives up in a, like a minivan. We did not know what was going on. We, but we, for some reason, got in this van. <laughs> like there's no, you know, you can't even really like reach out to people because of social media blockages and things like that that are, that are in China. So we're in this van and like taking little videos of ourselves being like, okay, like if anyone finds our phone, like this is the license plate. <laughs> <laughs> we were like showing, like showing this guy on our camera being like, this is what he looks like in case we're being kidnapped. Like we don't actually know, <laughs> but it was incredible. Like he drove us so much faster than a bus would have driven us to Shanghai which is where we needed to catch our next flight. And we made the flight. It was just like, it felt like we were on a movie. We were running through the airport and like panicking on this two hour drive with this, in this back of this minivan where we weren't really sure if we were supposed to be in it. It was, I would say that was one comes to mind as far as a, a pretty wild story. <laughs> was it just a favor? Did you end up paying him like a taxi? Like who was this guy? They just called up their friend like, Hey, what are you doing tonight? I need you to drive these two <laughs> random Canadians to the Shanghai. Like what happened? I think, I think we ended up paying him like 50 bucks or something like that. Um, but it wasn't like, it wasn't a lot of money. We didn't know we had to pay him until the very end. And it was very like, obviously broken English the entire time and trying to use translators. on. <laughs> like I remember us just like kind of laughing, but also kind of hysterical and like putting Google translate into our phone of trying to translate to him. Like you're taking us to the airport, right? Like, <laughs> so scary but you know I feel like a lot of players have weird stories like that where it's just like okay what else are we supposed to do in this insane situation right now so yeah we (laughs) we took a minivan to Shanghai wow well that's that's a good one to add to our list like China comes up a lot but there's so many different layers that just the the language barrier and like you said social media just (laughs) we're out of our element and some funny stuff happens. Oh God. Yeah. So much. (laughs) Oh, well, awesome. Thanks again for taking the time, especially on your wedding anniversary to, you know, teach us about your career and it's exciting to see all the stuff you got on the go and hopefully with COVID, you know, hopefully being over soon, we can see evolve volley and all the other awesome stuff you're up to get going again. But for now, thanks for teaching us about your career and exciting to see what's next. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I'm excited to be a friend of the show. (laughs) It's official now. It's official. Yeah. (laughs)